Imagine a world where your hands reshape reality. Meet Amy Peck, an XR strategist and the founder of Endeavor VR. I met Amy when we worked together at Leap Motion, a company that pushed the boundaries of technology and hand tracking in virtual reality. In those early days, hand tracking was a puzzle. Capturing the subtleties of human gestures seemed impossible. Leap Motion made this possible, teaching computers to understand the language of our hands, even in the face of occlusion and varying skin tones that may misalign tracking. Amy's journey with XR didn't end at Leap Motion. Today, she's a consultant. Amy works behind the scenes, advising companies on how to adopt XR, transforming customer experiences, boosting productivity, and reshaping training. Friends, here's Amy Peck. Hey, Amy, how's it going? Good. It's so good to see you. It's been actually quite a long time since I saw you last It has. It has. I think the last time we hung out was, um, I think it was like an art gallery opening for Tony's partner. Yeah, Tony Marina Marina Berlin. Yes, downtown. In, yeah, uh, like that's uh, right. That's right. Dog there patch was a, area. Where was that? It was in San Francisco. I think it was a dog patch. Yeah, it, it was in the yeah. dog patch. I think that's yeah. yeah. And and of course we used to work together at Leap Motion, uh, the hand tracking company for 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 XR or before it was really just for the desktop, but uh, we found a really good product market fit with XR, and we've known each other forever, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and I I do. Also, <laughs> you are a very competitive ping pong player because remember we had a a team building exercise where it was we were all playing ping pong. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't I don't know necessarily if I'm great at it, but I do hit some ping pongs. You know, yeah, it's fun. Cool. Yeah. So, um, thank you so much. It's been a long time, and I'm so great uh, grateful for you to being on the show and um, fill me in, Amy. What's what's been going on with you? Well, actually, well, so as I left Leap Motion, as you know, I, I started what was then called Endeavor VR that we've now uh, changed to Endeavor XR uh, about four years ago. Um, and I've been consulting. I started a consulting firm. And so when I was at Leap Motion with you, um, and, and we did start to look at the opportunities in the VR space for hand tracking, which was great. Um, I, you know, I started to realize, because my focus was enterprise, and I started to realize that People were really intrigued by this technology, but they didn't really know what to do with it. And I thought, okay, this is this is the thing. I think this is the thing. So, so I, I jumped off into what I call the abyss of consulting. Well, you know, the reason why I wanted to speak with you because you have such a unique perspective on building businesses around XR, and that's what you did at Leap Motion. That's a lot of the times that we would work together was finding out specific use cases of why. Fortune 500 companies would even use hand tracking, especially in their in their work pipelines. Um, going going back to the early days, I mean, wow, you remember how difficult and challenging it was to convince people even why virtual reality. And I don't know, are you still having those conversations of educating new clients like why virtual reality, why the metaverse, and and we can go into details about what that even means today. Um, give give me your thoughts on that. That might educate the audience. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think in, in, on the one hand, there's been a little bit of an evolution and, you know, companies and leaders within companies are starting to understand the technology. But I still spend a lot of time. I think the Most challenge the we're in now forward. is that like all of the technology is just is is moving so quickly. So it's not just, you know, XR. First it was VR, then AR, then MR, then XR. 
And then you have the metaverse, and then now you have AI and you have generative AI. And so all of these technologies are kind of having their, you know, Andy Warhol used to talk about their 15 minutes of fame. And I think we're getting stuck on the flavor of the moment and we're not thinking in a, in a more kind of global futuristic way. Like, well, I think we all need to become futurists. I think we need to all project ourselves 25 years into the future and figure out like, what are the products and services of the future? And then we use technology to kind of backfill and get us there. And so do you think that's your main role in terms of being a consultant in XR is to educate enterprise companies of the value of technology of the future technology can bring to their business to be preparing for, for that future success that these companies need to, you know, actually keep up with, with technology is, do you think that's kind of encapsulates your role? Yeah, I think job one is, is getting people up to speed on, on the core capabilities of, of each of the technologies that we look at, cause we don't limit ourselves just to, you know, XR technology. Um, and then, you know, along that same vein is how do we make in incremental process optimizations in your business, right? Which we know we can do. But I do think that right now we have to also build a parallel path that is much more futuristic. And this has to be top down. This has to be from the C-suite down um, to, to really start to, to rethink how we do business why we're doing some of the things that we're doing start, you know, that we have the, the SDGs that we have to consider and, and, you know, how do we use technology to solve all of these challenges? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lot for anyone to understand. Um, so I like to think of, of hopefully easily explain the capabilities of the technology. So no matter what level uh, an executive might be at, they, they can understand what the technology can do and how it can work within their business. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are new to XR or are new to technology saying, wow, that seems like such an awesome job, you know? Um, so your, your main role is to figure out what problems may lie in terms of what technologies can solve with, companies can solve with technology and also increase business. And then making sure that there's kind of, um, you know, in sync involved with uh, not only their mission of trying to use technology to solve a problem, but also bringing in other partners like companies and developers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, what's really interesting now in the industry is that we've gone from having to build pretty much everything from scratch, which when I first started my my business, I mean, there were a few companies doing VR training, but they're very specific to military or aviation. Um, but what's happened now is, is over the last, you know, almost decade, there are now really great ISVs, independent software vendors who now have, you know, almost fully baked solutions. I think nothing is really off the shelf, off the shelf, but you could fire up, you know, buy a couple of headsets, fire up a software and, and have your people in it in that same afternoon, um, which, which you couldn't do a decade ago. And you, know, you really had to, to think about what level of investment you were willing to make in hiring a team of developers to build you something bespoke. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. I mean, today we are in the, the age of commercial VR where headsets are not duct taped together. Like when we first started getting into the industry, um, things that, that's right. That's right. We, we, we would actually literally duct tape uh, leap motion devices in front of VR headsets so we can actually try hand tracking in the early days before we actually had a commercial product. But 
um, also in the early, you know, developer kit days of Oculus, you know, things just didn't work. Uh, six degrees of freedom, you know, complete positional hand tracking, you know, anchoring of, of digital objects in your real environment, forget about it. Okay. Uh, we've come a long way. And in terms of that timing, where do you see the current XR landscape today in terms of business interest? I think there's a lot, I, I think it, it's in two camps. I think you have companies that have been kind of ferreting away in their R&D labs. They have a bunch of devices. Some of them are collecting dust. Some of them are in use. Uh, and then you have companies that are having a, a hard time figuring out how to just introduce this level of technology. Um, for example, you know, we, we, we talked earlier before we, we started recording about, you know, I have a podcast on the AEC industry. And that's, you know, you've got some really old school, you know, hard-worn, like, you know, field technicians out there in the world. And it's not easy to put headsets on them or, you know, even even iPads. It took forever to, to get them to transition to iPads. And so you really have to make such an exponential improvement in their workflow that they're motivated to overcome the, the sort of learning challenge of, of the technology itself. Uh, and then in the other camp, you, you know, the, the companies that have been looking at this for a while are, are I, I think there's an opportunity to really start deploying in significant numbers. And there's there's a lot of large, large, you know, F500 companies that have already done that, but not to the degree that we see other hardware, right? Not to the degree that we see the hardware that we use every day, mobile devices and laptops and, and you know, even workstations. So to get to that, you know, it's it's going to be a longer road because the devices are still big and unwieldy. We're going to laugh at ourselves, you know, wearing these bricks on our faces 10 years from now. We're going to be like, oh my God, that's what I had on my head. Um, and, and so, you know, we still have, have a little ways to go, um, but, but I'm excited. I, I think all of the hardware is sufficiently advanced that it's deployable. I think the ISVs and the software that's available is sufficiently advanced that it's deployable. So companies that want to set themselves up for the for the future, uh, which is the near future, need to really start using this technology and just at the very least build a fluency with it and solve a couple of, of really obvious problems like like in training, like you know, see what I see. Some of the things that we know both VR and and uh, you know MR can do very well. Yeah, you touched upon, you know, a, a sector or industry that really can benefit from XR, which is AEC, which is architecture, engineering, and construction. And that industry is ripe for innovation, except as you well put it, they're, they're a little old school in terms of adopting new technology. But in terms of efficiency and productivity, wow, for architecture, you can imagine XR doing a lot of visualization. So, you know, you sh I'm sure you know all the same players that I, I speak with. They're using VR in, in their architectural renderings to actually not only view designs, but actually be in the designs themselves. And then engineering, how to, how to improve engineering workflows with doing simulations in, in XR. And then construction, obviously, building and, and you know, checking out you know, efficiencies or, or finding more ways to be more productive and actually construction aspects of, of buildings or different projects. But at the same time, as you mentioned, they're, they're a little bit slow to adopt new technology. And, and some of these companies, um, they, they may even consider adding apps uh, into their workflows just in the last eight or 10 years, right? 
Um, what is the kind of word on the street with AEC and their adoption of XR today? I mean, are they a little bit more um, more open to the idea or, or are, they, are they adopting in a full? I mean, I'm having separate conversations with other companies too that they're very motivated, but I'm not seeing those use cases out to market yet. Yeah, I think, again, it's in, in two camps. You have companies that are you know, really, really advanced. They've embraced, you know, BIM, you know, building information modeling that is is a way for them to kind of manage not only the construction lifecycle, but then building lifecycle management. Um, and then there are others that are, are kind of, you know, filling little gaps here and there. Um, it's going to be very hard for those companies to, to, to keep up to the, to the level that the technology is. Um, especially relative to other companies that have really adopted the technology and are starting to have it trickle down into the field. That's the hardest place. I think if you're in an office um, or you have a controlled training environment, those are environments that are pretty, you know, relatively easy to deploy. When you start getting into the field where there's, you know, maybe mixed connectivity, maybe there are people who just don't want the technology, like they barely even want to use their iPads. That's where it starts to become challenging, but that's also where some of the biggest benefit occurs. And I've always said, you know, relative to uh, the efficiencies, there's incredible efficiencies in leveraging the technology, especially kind of, I, I always find it odd that they, they build the, the as-built after the building is done. Why would you not do that while you're building the building? Like we have LIDAR, wearable LIDAR scanners. I actually have a very funny picture of myself at ITSEC two years ago wearing it, looking incredibly glamorous, I might add. Um, but uh, <laughs> I guarantee you if, you, if you trigger payments uh, to having to you know, do a LIDAR scan at every you know, juncture uh, during inspection of a building during the build phase, People will comply. And so that's building in an efficiency, but in some ways you you have to push it a little bit by tying payment to it. That's cool. I mean, just the idea of you in a LIDAR suit is actually really cool. Um, like with, with the LIDAR suit, I mean, I'm a, that- It's a, it was that? metal, it's almost like a metal backpack, but it's big. And then it has this huh. like, little spaceship on top that is the LIDAR scanner. And it probably weighs, I don't know, 30 pounds, not light, but it's fine. And you just, you kind of put your arms in it and you can walk around and, and scan. And it's an $80,000 device. It's a company called Naviz that makes it. It's phenomenal. And the point cloud data that the, that the LiDAR is capturing, you know, I don't know if you remember in the days, like looking at LiDAR, it, it was like, they were all like awful, pixelated, horrible looking images. Yeah, it was a mess. You couldn't really tell exactly no, what you were looking no, at. Yeah. No. And now, you know, the software is so good. Like they look like beautiful renderings, you know? So it, again, mm. I think all of it had to just get exponentially better. Um, and now it's moving really quickly. And so there are, there are companies today. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great use case is sort of build your as built while you're building the building. And then you build it once and you deploy kind of across multiple use cases. So for building lifestyle, you know, uh, cycle management, a digital twin is an end to end way to manage your building from, you know, optimization to, um, you know, predictive analytics. I mean, it, the, the use cases are endless, so it does pay for itself but it's a significant investment up front. That's right. That's right. Why, why haven't we as an industry, especially around BIM modeling, AEC, 
you know, all these terms that have to do with like construction and architecture. Why? And, and that LIDAR use case is, is awesome. Like that totally makes sense to me, you know, being able to capture your uh, construction while it's being built. So that can like have a whole bunch of data to feedback in terms of the design of, of why you're actually building this thing. Um, why haven't those use cases cropped up yet where, you know, we're reading about these Fortune 500 companies adopting? Is it just because right now it's still a lot of convincing or, or in my case, where I'm talking to a lot of companies, companies are just kind of dipping their toes in, building prototypes to see if they can sell it through management and through the board. Um, tell me about the three main challenges of why we haven't got these mainstream adoptions with, with bigger companies having these use cases or no, there, there's several of them that, that have you know, come out that I, I just don't know about. I mean, there's a, there's a few. I mean, JL, JLL has been you know doing a lot of work in the in the space, um, and and a lot of other large companies. But deployments are still relatively small. I think you know three challenges. One is still still the hardware. So the wearable aspect of the hardware, they're not really that wearable, um, and the connectivity can be a challenge, especially in a building that's in a much more remote location. Um, and then the the economics are even though on paper we can map out the you know savings year over year by using this type of technology because the the investment is so high up front that is a challenge and and there's a lot of if it ain't broke don't fix it right so there's that mentality of like this is working we we've got a system it's not perfect but to disrupt it I call it kind of the 10x quotient, like you have to improve it by 10x, whether it's in finances or speed or something that is so astronomically better, right, that they can't ignore it. And so I, we're still in sort of that 10x mode now, um, but that's going to start to change uh, because the, co the companies that are really, really deploying, they're not all really talking about it publicly because they know that this is their competitive advantage in the future. That's totally right. I think that's also uh, something that I've been hearing as well. A lot of these companies are deploying smaller use cases, prototypes, just to figure out if they can get a competitive advantage. So that, that was a great point there. You know, now to talk about, you know, a sea change, um, Apple Vision Pro, Apple's getting into the mix. And I think that signaled a lot to me because that gave me at least uh, a roadmap of when uh, tens of millions of people might be donning an XR headset. Um, and I know you, you are, you've been very involved with um, different developers and ISVs, independent software vendors who are interested in building XR. What, what do you think about the new Apple Vision Pro headset? Well, everybody's very excited about it. Um, we've been waiting for it for a long time. The rumors have been swirling. I personally really wanted it to come out in 2020 for obvious you know, reasons to 2020 vision. Um, but you know it, the fact that Apple is coming in, we know that this is going to be a device that consumers can wear. Is it going to be perfect? No, but they're not going to come out with something that they don't believe is going to be successful in the consumer market. Um, their marketing has been interesting because there, there's definitely a uh, consumer component, but there were also nods to this being a device that you can use at work. I've been a big believer in this um, kind of dual approach because we know that in enterprise, this technology, no matter what the device, can solve significant business problems. The ROI is always almost always double digits. 
But part of the adoption reason is that we don't really have a connection to these devices in our day-to-day -day lives. And so I think that consumer is going to be one of the unlocks for enterprise, mainly because the best people to use technology to solve problems are the people who are in the field and they solve one problem with the technology, but if they're using it in their day-to-day -day lives, they're gonna come back to work and go, oh, we can use this for X, Y, Z and, and all the way down the line. But until they really understand it and care about it, nothing's gonna happen. So that's why I'm excited about it. Um, but I kind of think it's a V3 strategy, V1, primarily developers, V2, early adopters, V3, you know, we'll have content and you'll start to really see hopefully consumer uptake. Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, spot on. I think in regards to the Apple Vision Pro, they're doing a couple things right that at least send signals to the development community that hand tracking is now, you know, stable enough where Apple is going to be, you know, advertising, promoting that, which was in the early days, you got a lot of jitter when it came to hand tracking, a lot of the technology being used, we were trying to create hand tracking devices that were very inexpensive. So leap motion, like we worked on, they captured hand tracking through monochromatic 2D images. And then we had an algorithm to understand what your hands are doing in 3D space. A lot of processing, a lot of things in the background, but it also equated to a lot more mistakes. With hand tracking with Apple Vision Pro, you've got a multiple array of cameras, being able to even get small gesture movements and also eye tracking. Um, some of those features specifically with eye tracking and hand tracking, have you heard a lot of other you know, noise around other companies that are really excited to utilize um, these new commercial features, which have been around forever, but they're now you know, productized where they actually work? Like, well, what are your thoughts on that? What, what have you been hearing about other, from other, other developers? Well, I think the developers are excited to, to get in and, and kind of look at some of the use cases, but from a business perspective, and this is always the developer and client conversation. Developers want to build crazy, amazing experiences. Companies want to solve a problem. Sometimes those two match really well, but a lot of times there are more features than we really need. And, and again, when you're starting to think about the level of compute, the challenges we have getting these devices up on networks, like we have a lot to overcome in these environments. And one thing I've really found, which is not music to developers ears, is that less is more. But do a few things really, really well. And then save the fun stuff. If you want to put it in and unlock it later, great. But don't tell anyone about it. <laughs> Make your lives easy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because it, it really is, we, we find that that um, in general, companies kind of want tried and true right now. And like I said, I think that's not going to change until consumers really care and they start bringing their ideas to work. And in the same way we saw smartphones start to really proliferate, you know, in, in our personal lives and in our work lives, and we used to have two, and now we had one. I, I see a point at which we need to get to that tipping point where we're going home and we're using these devices, whether it's for entertainment or play or learning, whatever it happens to be, because that um, understanding and fluency is going to translate into enterprise. 
Yeah. And I think with enterprise, it's going to happen first in terms of people understanding the the true use cases of why it's beneficial productivity. And the reason why I'm saying that is that right now, even where the headsets, um, the weight of the headsets today, like the Quest, the Quest 2 specifically, I can wear it for about a couple of hours without feeling just tremendous strain. And I sometimes get amazed about people like my nephew, though, who can be in the headset for, you know, 24 hours if, if he was even given the chance to do so, uh, playing Pop pop One or something. For gaming, I think that immersion for, for younger audiences, it just kind of fits. They, they deal with the uncomfortableness because, you know, what they gain from the actual entertainment value um, is, it outweighs the discomfort. But I think that also applies to someone in productivity. I think that was always the hypothesis that for enterprise, they'll adopt XR because they're trying to solve a problem and they'll deal with the discomfort because of the, the, you know, the, the accolades and, and the benefits that would come with it. Do you think that's true today, considering where we're at with hardware? I think it's still a while before. I mean, what we want are magic wafers. I mean, that's just it. And, you know, I think yeah. it was interesting that, you know, you look at the devices that are out on the market today and it was like, all right, how can we build the, you know, the best device, the best experience with the best fidelity, maintain the, you know, 90 you know, frame rate so that people don't get sick. And then what's the smallest we can make it, right? And so that, that it was sort of that working from that direction. And then there was a company that Google bought called Focals by North which said, all right, we're starting with this. Like they're, they're just gonna be regular glasses. And how much can we put in this to maintain this form factor? And what we need those to do, we need both of those to kind of, you know, meet in the middle. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what Google does. I mean, they, they have a lot of the, the HoloLens 2 team are over there. Um, you know, the HoloLens 2 team is now kind of all over, spread among, you know, uh, Apple and, and um, Meta and Google. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they kind of come out swinging at any point with a, with a consumer device that is much more like this kind of a wearable. Um, but, but it's, it's really a long, I mean, it's a long road. I mean, this, we say hardware is hard, but the, the optics like magic leap has 18 layers of optics, right? And this is, it's a magic leap Two is a stunning device. Like it is, it is, isn't, uh, an exponential leap from, from, from HoloLens too. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, that's a, that's also a device that, you know, because of the level of compute, it has a pack it's tethered. So there's this kind of cause and effect. And so, you know, it, it's possible. And I, and I've had a lot of conversations with, with people on the hardware side about this, that for the foreseeable future, you'll have one device for kind of a specific lane of jobs, right? And so like for a Musix, for example, or a lighter weight um, wearable for something in the warehouse where you just need monocular, it doesn't have to be color, it doesn't have to be high fidelity, and you're doing some kind of a rote activity, and it's really just helping you. To all the way to what the military wanted to do with IVAS with HoloLens 2, which was like have, have this on soldiers to, to kind of protect them in the field. That did not go all that well. but. Um, but I, but I like where they're trying to push the technology, right? And so, again, it's like, what does the, the technology 
you're like, what hardware do you need with what software? What are you trying to accomplish? And then what is the environment? And that I think is going to start to bifurcate the way like companies might have three or four devices for three or four different lines of business. And that's just the reality for right now. No pun intended. Yeah. I, I think what you mentioned regarding North, um, it, North was really interesting is that they did design um, some really awesome technology around glasses, but they marketed it like the glasses were ready. They, they just look fantastic. They look fashionable. They look cool. And it was a small team that put to get, put that together. And then I haven't heard anything since, since the acquisition. And um, no, have you heard very, anything very going quiet. on with this? They very, very quiet. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I can't wait. We can't yeah. wait to, uh, they were just also I remember meeting that. I don't remember who exactly I met from that camp, but um, they were super fashionable. <laughs> like they just had it all like figured out in terms of like, yeah, it's all about style. Like you're not going to wear ugly, yeah. you know, big bulky headsets on, on yeah. your face. And, yeah. and I think um, we're going to eventually get to there, but there's going to be steps, right? Like you had mentioned, you know, until we get smaller form factors, but to your point, we're going to find specific challenges that are going to be solved with XR and different headsets or even different technologies will be able to have those as solutions. Um, in terms of uh, technology today, and you know, we didn't we didn't touch too much on this, but we we talked about this privately. What do you think about this whole idea of metaverse? Is metaverse dead? Is, is that word just kind of alert? People are just allergic to that word metaverse. Yeah, yeah. I just did a talk called "The Metaverse Is Dead: Long Live the Metaverse." Um, you know, it, <laughs> oh, I want to check that out. Yeah, it's it. You know, it. I think that that there was it just fell prey to the hype cycle. And it fell prey to kind of the abject money grab. And, and then the, the sort of the confluence of metaverse, Web3, crypto. Um, I'm sorry I did not wear my white puffer today for my, like, my, when I'm channeling my crypto, <laughs> my, my inner crypto bro. But, um, you know, the problem is, is that every, it was just this abject money grab for everybody. And what was so ironic is that, you know, you have sort of the philosophy of Web3 being, oh, it's decentralized. It's going to be like, you know, power to the people. It's going to, you know, have this equal playing field, which ended up just being nonsense because all, you know, everyone in that realm was trying to do was create another 1%. It's just now they're in it. <laughs> so it was like, it just, it didn't make right. any sense to me. Sure. Um, and the NFT, the NFT drops, and I and I believe in NFTs. I've actually been investing in in crypto since like 2015. Um, you know, and I, I'm a believer in all of these technologies. I'm just not a believer in taking the current ethos of just growth at all costs, and the current you know this economy of scarcity, and applying it in the metaverse, which is an infinite landscape. It doesn't even make sense. So to build this kind of false scarcity. So I think we just, you know, we got, we got kind of duped and we, we went down a rabbit hole and um, followed the white rabbit. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll come up with a more sensible path forward as this digital landscape unfolds around us. And I think where, you know, you know, Apple has it right is um, the notion of spatial computing, right? It's not about necessarily a fully immersive environment. It's about taking everything off of our screens and having it live in the world around us and accessible in context to what we want to do. And, and you know, accessible through gaze, through gesture, through voice, 
and eventually with the little chips in our heads through thought. Um, in fact, they did, uh, they were issued a patent around um, an EEG device, uh, you know, in ear that could ostensibly go in a version um, in, in the near future that will, um, you know, measure brainwaves and potentially even be an input device. So you know, we're, we're getting, you know, we're moving fast into the brain computer, computer interface world as well. So it's all, it's all very exciting though. I love it. Yeah, it's super exciting. And I agree in the sense that the definition of the metaverse was just stepped on. I think the ethos of Web3 still stands in the sense that that's why I got really into blockchain. Um, like yeah, I was in it a long time ago. I don't know if you remember, but we actually accepted Bitcoin at Leap Mo on the Leap Motion store. <laughs> and oh, that's because we're Coinbase in the early days to even... actually get that integrated. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I don't remember who at Coinbase I was working with, but they actually gave me, I don't even exactly know how much Bitcoin they gave me. I just don't know where that wallet went. <laughs> I don't even know how much they gave me, but Same I always thing. kind of think about that. He's got, he's got, he's probably yeah, got just being able to thousands of dollars of, in Bitcoin buried somewhere and you can't find it. <laughs> well, I think that's also one of the main reasons why it hasn't gotten adopted today and why it's gotten such a, a bad rap that the onboarding and and just even the user friendliness of it, like being able to lose your wallet and just kind of forget like lose how everything. much money you had, like that's I think you lose everything already. That that's that's challenging. And secondly, I think the idea of metaverse, the reason why I was so drawn to it was that it was really the ethos of being able to own digital content. Like if we were to have virtual worlds that we can live and work in. We would probably not want to be renters and we would probably want to own things and customize things that we can take off. But I think that idea alone got twisted. That definition got twisted and, and it didn't help that with anything that has a lot of money drawn to it, you're going to attract probably the wrong people. Just like in the early dot-com days, or I remember like, you know, all you had to do was write HTML code and VCs were cutting you checks. And that was the same way of like, oh, I actually know how to, uh, you know, code a little bit in, uh, you know, any name, any of the blockchain languages today, and you're going to get a, a check cut out to you. And I think we're in the same situation where, we're now trying to walk back from that that negative backlash. Do you think we'll ever be able to do it? Or do you think this is just a moment in time where we just trying to change the definition, almost like rebranding Twitter to X or like Facebook to Meta? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's an evolution. I think, you know, we're, we're in this kind of gilded world where, you know, we're in technology. So we're all kind of talking to each other about technology but the rest of the world kind of doesn't care. I mean, they really don't. I mean, you go out outside of our little clicky network, people are like blockchain, what metaverse, what? Like they just, it's not, it doesn't feel real to them because it doesn't have any day-to-day -day utility. And, you know, I think we talked a little bit about, you know, the killer app, which is what everybody talks about. And I don't think it's the killer app. I think it's killer utility. What will we use every day? Like when these devices are, actually wearable and they, you know, enhance our day to day. So all the stuff that I'm like searching for my phone for, I can just call up and I'm like, which direction do I need to go? I need to send a text. Uh, I, who is this person? They look like they, they know me and they're going to say something and I'm not going to remember their name and they're boom, they're, you know, their LinkedIn profile pops up. Um, so that it becomes this seamless part of our day 
not unlike the way smartphones did, but hopefully we have an opportunity to, to rethink the ramifications also of being tethered to these devices, you know, literally and figuratively, um, you know, all day, every day. Yeah. And, and, you know, what, what does that mean when the perception of being tethered all day is also negative? I mean, we, we've all seen the movies and I think rarely where, where that, you know, kind of changes is when we have those use cases where, where everyone feels empowered. And I think that's the difference between a technology like ChatGPT and generative AI, which AI has been around forever, but generative AI and the way people use it today, people can see instant gratification and there's not that much of a barrier if you, as long as you know how to get onto a browser. And I don't think we've had that aha moment because we're also tied to a technology that's tethered and that's you know, literally you're, you're bringing a headset onto your face and then carrying a compute into your pocket. Uh, it, it may seem a little bit like a leash for some people and it just seems scary. And I think until we actually have those aha moments where people are using it and saying, oh, this is why I use it. I, I use it to 3D scan, you know, my kids and I'm able to relive those memories with them later. Uh, we're just not at that moment yet. But I do think that, you know, companies, they do find ways to have a competitive advantage. And I especially see that with a lot of companies doing design. Um, what other use cases or do you want to elaborate on specific use cases around design and why that would be beneficial for uses in XR? Yeah, I mean, it, for really any kind of design and especially you know, so there's sort of the interdepartmental design, like an automotive, for example, where they literally used to make a physical buck clay model uh, and, and they would ship it to, to like the, the other design teams in Asia, if they were in the US or in Europe. And it was, it was the most unwieldy, just crazy way of doing business. And so that's, that was sort of an obvious one. But I think part of the other is not just around design it's it's about visualization, right? And and you, for example, um, I don't know if you have ever you know redecorated your house or you know gone to a, a model or you know going to a store and seeing something in the store and trying to figure out how it looks in in your house is is really challenging, you know, especially when you start adding like for for like you're trying to do a whole room, right? And so this is just a basic example, but just being able to see how it looks and, and you know, be able to see it in, in your environment, right? And, it, and it's really about just creating a level of understanding that's seamless, that is hard for people to extrapolate and to see around the corners, essentially. And so I think that's one of the aspects and visualization takes so many forms. Like also think about data, right? Visualizing data, we still visualize data even in a 3D environment in these kind of 2D constructs or 3D constructs that we've been ingesting through a 2D screen. And so what does it look like to stand in the middle of middle of data? And I'm not talking about pods with all, you know, the way we do now, like the pods with all the little, you know, it's like developers can see that because they think in terms of kind of, you know, branching code, branching narrative. Um, but the average person doesn't necessarily think that way. So there's a new visual language that will emerge around visualizing massive sets of data from within and organically working with data. We haven't even invented that. And this is where, you know, moving away from, again, that 
incremental optimization, which is important, but we already know that the technology can do that. And really starting to, to be much more um, kind of global, I call it actually volumetric thinking. It's one of the workshops that we run. It's really looking at where do we want to go? It's being proactive instead of reactive. It's designing, it's envisioning instead of predicting. And that's a different mindset. And I think all of us should, should be doing this on a daily basis. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned data because in terms of a use case, I don't know why this hasn't been explored as much as it has or has has not been, but every Fortune 5 company has data that they would like to reinterpret or at least visualize in a different way to understand it better. And, you know, there's companies like Flow Immersive who who I'm actually advising on who actually takes incredible amounts of data and they're able then to then portrayed in headset, and they're also incorporating Gen AI, where you can now ask the AI to then visualize it in a bar ch bar graph, or no, change that into a radial graph, and then let me know how to visualize this set of data and exclude this type of data. And I really do believe that's going to be a strong use case, especially when these companies want to understand like, hey, what do we do when we have all this information and how do we present it? Data visualization is key. And I think design is key. I think um, what other use cases does this unlock now that we have generative AI into the mix? Well, I think- And, and XR. Yeah, all of it. Well, you know, we have, we're all now lifelong learners, whether we like it or not. And so this notion of, you know, going to kindergarten and elementary school and middle school and high school, and then going to college, a four-year college, I think those days are kind of over. I think we'll still go to school, but I think we're going to start doing these short, sharp shocks of learning that are much more of a kind of a building blocks or sort of passport to um, where we want to go in our careers, right? And, and because technology is moving so quickly and the world is moving so quickly and we have some significant problems to solve and I'm, I'm, I still, I, I use... Kevin Kelly's term protopian, still very positive about the future, but we have a lot of global challenges we need to overcome and the technology can do that, but we all need to engage. And so I think from a learning perspective to um, not only allow us to continue to elevate our careers and our, and our knowledge, um, but to do it in a way that we haven't really been able to do before in, in adaptive learning, right? We've had this concept of adaptive learning where you take into consideration one's learning style. Some people are visual learners, some people are spatial learners, some people are linear. You know, there's multiple Howard Gardner's uh, seven intelligences. There's 13, there's 100. It depends on who you talk to. Um, but we do know that we all learn differently. Um, and so what if we were given information in the best way for us to be able to absorb it and retain it and then apply it? And I think that is going to be one of the incredible benefits of really uh, elevating us as humans in a way that we want, right? So it doesn't feel like work. I mean, I don't know about you, but I wasn't super psyched to get up at 6.30 every morning and go trundling off to school and listen to someone drone on for six oh, hours. Oh, that sounds so fun. <laughs> yeah. And so, right. you know, but now we we can be in these like fantastical environments and we can be led by our curiosity and we can learn 
very specifically the way that we learn and learn what we want to learn, right? And the way we want to learn it. So that is really exciting to me. I think that's also just an industry in general that is ripe to be turned on its head, along with data visualization. Yeah, I think AI, and you've heard this before, that AI is... AI needs XR because XR can be able to um, be the interface for AI. Like it, it helps AI be visualized. And you touched upon training and education where, yeah, education just needs to be disrupted because A, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not very fun and not very immersive. And now we have something like ChatGPT and we have affordable headsets where you can now in, empower you know, in, in a digital AI to then be some of your favorite, uh, you know, people in the world that can educate you about some specific thing. You know, I've heard like Mark Andreessen said, oh, you can actually learn about the Civil War from Abraham Lincoln and yeah. being able to have, you know, a virtual Abraham Lincoln giving you the rundown and teaching you about the Civil War and being interactive too. You can ask questions and get that type of feedback. And I think that's going to be so powerful. What other things as a futurist do you think are going to be Amy's predictions in the next five years? <laughs> um, well, I think if I if I wake up and, and I get to be czar of all things tomorrow, um, I would hope that we create uh, a completely different economy around this digital landscape, because that is very exciting to me. This idea that there's a different value system that can run in parallel in this digital landscape that allows really everybody to play in the global economy through these microtransactions and, and you know, part, partly through what you're talking about, then this ownership of digital assets. But instead of owning and then locking it down and it's mine, 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 how do you own something and then let somebody kind of riff on top of that? So, you know, really thinking of an economy that is expansive. Uh, and infinite as opposed to based on scarcity. Like, you know, er everything we think we know is a construct. And, you know, time, color, space, I mean, all of it. And so, you know, we have this incredible opportunity to reinvent ourselves. So let's go back to like when we were five, you know, and be like, oh, what are you going to do today? You're like, well, obviously I'm going to ride my purple, purple giraffe Fred and we're going to go to the moon and we're going to, you know, pick some money off the money tree and we're going to go to the candy store. And, you know, we're going to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And as long as I'm back by six, mom doesn't get mad. Like we can dream that up in a heartbeat because we live in this kind of semi-fantasy state. But then you add experience to that, to, you know, to, to real fantasy. And you start to be able to have the underpinnings of a new way of solving problems and a new mindset and a new way of looking at things. And you know, not to cause uh, an undue revolution, but, you know, we can do better than what we've done. And so let's use the technology to help us get there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with that. I think um, that also reminds me of um, kind of this critique from Philip Rosedale, who was the founder of Second Life. And he wrote this Medium article that I read today. And I've known Philip for a long time. And he was making a critique on Sam Altman's, um, you know, the founder of ChatGPT, his uh, new token called World Token, I believe. Yeah, World, yeah, World and Coin. And World Token, World Coin, you know, empowers you to, you know, first of all, you can earn 
um, world coin by scanning your eye because you know the the problem with blockchain with a lot of technology a lot of it's run by bots and you know the whole premise of worldcoin is that we want to authenticate everyone at being human with with their eye data and so they're paying people i don't know if it's 20 bucks or 50 bucks to give that up um like, that going? which which i don't know if that yeah where's that going i mean i guess you're 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 then identifying that this person is a person and, you know, I'm sure there's a tie-in that was Philip's big critique, like, hey, that's universal basic income, but we can do it better. And, and that's something that Philip Rosedale is trying to change right now. He's actually, that's, that's his, you know, new, new project that he's working on. What do you think about like dystopian ideals or critiques about technology when it comes to that? And what do you think about WorldCoin? Well, I think that that's a, that's a, look, it's a, I, I think it's coming from the right place. But we we have to create the mechanism for proof of humanity, one, and then self-sovereign identity, um, self-sovereign data. But we have to do it, right? It's going to be work. But, but we have to, we have to I, I think that we need to build the interface and, and have our own kind of personal AIs that, that helps us manage our own data. And that is also going to be one of the under, underpinnings. But I, I talked to, to Philip about this. Um, I, I went and sat and he has, he's taken over the old Second Life office now. Um, and, you know, the, the idea is that, that we need to be able to prove who we are. We might present in multiple different ways, you know, in, in, this, in these virtual landscapes. Uh, but we need to be able to have it tied to a core identity. But that core identity has to kind of either live on our own kind of managed blockchain. We need to have some protections and we need AI to help us manage that. Uh, and so that the flows don't necessarily tie our identity to any of our personas or, or avatars in the digital landscape, but that there is a, a mechanism for proof. Uh, and then once you've solved that, then I think we start to be able, and, and look, I, I think that that's a great, that's one way of doing it. I, I'm a little bit nervous about, first of all, I'm a little bit nervous about Sam Altman just having his little fingers and toes into literally everything that we do. Um, and so I don't, you know, <laughs> he's, he's become his own centralized network. <laughs> yes, yes, that is um, true. <laughs> well, and then he's he's also don't forget he was at Y Combinator. And I, like, well, I know. Look I at know. his reach through all the startups, you know, that he's yeah. helped. Yeah, he's one of the villains yeah. from like all the 70s movies, like at the very top of the building, like, you know, like <laughs> I'm just. Um, but no, you know, it, it but I think as consumers, we've got to figure out, you know, we've got to be a little bit more demanding. Like GDPR happened because there was this outcry. But we were educated that, you know, we started to to realize like, oh, we're just, you know, being completely manipulated by, you know, social media and news outlets. Um, but we have to be willing to do the work. Otherwise, we're just going to become these digital lab rats. And the, you know, the problem with eye tracking and this all this biometric data that we're going to start to get an EEG data. I mean, that is medical data. And, you know, we react in really nuanced ways that could be leveraged against us in ways that we're not even conscious of. 
And so we need that data so we can understand ourselves better. And then we can decide, you know, who gets what data when. Um, and we should have a, a network uh, information construct where it's like something gets assigned a time to live. You go to the dentist, they don't need your entire medical history, but dentistry can, you know, has been um, linked, certain procedures have been linked to people who have heart murmurs. So maybe you let, you know, you give them that piece of data and it lasts for 48 hours on their system and then they don't have the onus of protecting it. They, you know, we know where our data is and our data is protected because the, the plethora of data that's going to come off of these, you know, um, smart materials and all of the sensors and, you know, the brain data, that is a tremendous amount of data. And we need to start looking at ways that we can manage it. And, and it's going to be really important for each of us to have our own kind of personal AI, trusted AI mechanism to do that. That's right. A trusted AI mechanism that also looks out for you as the individual. Like there is all this data. It's all your data. How is that being protected when you're giving it to a centralized entity like a corporation? And that was the ethos that got me really excited about Web3. You cannot have the metaverse unless you actually own it. However, like we had mentioned, <laughs> once, once it's, it, there's so much value into the mix, you're going to get bad actors coming you know, from all, 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 all nicks and crannies. Yeah. Um, and really, is is really running his world in sandbox or decentraland or wherever he is like really is that really oh, i'm sure it's probably yeah, his it is not it is his, his people assistant. yeah and who's <laughs> who's in sandbox today anyways there's maybe like five people to right now in sandbox um that that's that's uh that's interesting you mentioned sandbox what what, what do you think about sandbox i mean that's like that's a great one because sandbox is one of those like small uh, I mean, sorry, like one of those big explosions from a small company that came out of nowhere that said, hey, we're building the metaverse and very similar to a lot of metaverses that were being built. There just wasn't a lot of traction, but then they were able to generate a lot of buzz around their token, which then became very speculative. And again, bringing bad actors and not really in it for the projects, but you had, they, they, were, they did a great job to get celebrities like Snoop companies, uh, sponsors, Adidas, et cetera. But then there's nobody. And, and was that also kind of part of your thesis of why the metaverse is dead? Like a lot of these projects that come out as metaverse just kind of end up being flat? Well, and I'm or actually- do you think it's flat? Well, I, I, I do. I think it's also too early. Um, I think that I, I'm, I'm actually, I, I know Sebastian Bourget, the founder, and I think he's a, an incredible CEO. And I think he really has a great vision um, he's very focused also on, you know, creators and creating these amazing environments. Um, I've been pretty vocal about not buying into, um, the, the kind of digital landscape, real estate scarcity model. Um, I think that, that, you know, like Decentraland's doing something interesting where they're giving a 10 by 10 plot to creators. They're just giving it to them for free. And then they, you know, they build these spectacular landscapes. I think this is in an effort to kind of draw people in. But the thing is, is that it's almost like these environments are too broad. Like it, we kind of need the real world with the digital overlay before we need a fully immersive environment. And I think there's going to be room for all of it. And I think we will get to the point of having really what is a spectrum of reality. So I don't even think, I mean, I, first of all, I don't even think the word metaverse is going to stick. 
because uh, we don't talk about you know going on the world wide web or the inter the interwebs <laughs> anymore. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and, cyberspace. And, yeah, and really, you're 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 just going to move between you know real life augmented reality, kind of mixed reality and, and virtual reality and back again, and it's going to be seamless. And again, it's going to be in the same way that maybe one day you use your, you know, your, your smart device for one thing, you use your laptop for another, you use a workstation for another, you'll watch something on your television. You know, it's just like you're using whatever device and whatever reality is right for whatever you want to be doing. Um, but, but, you know, God, both, both Sandbox and Decentraland, even though, Again, there's there's sort of this greed component to it. God bless them because we will have these fully blown kind of virtual environments that are fantastical. Our brains just can't draw a line from here to there. Like we get in there, we're like, whoa, what do we do now? You know, and and so you look at Roblox, and Roblox is trying to bridge that gap, but that demographic is like eight to. 13 on their best day. They say like, they say, all right, 16. Okay. That's crazy. 16. Wow. You know, like it's still a very specific demographic. Um, and that's a gaming environment. We have to move past gaming and entertainment. That's a hook. Um, but that is a subsector of, you know, the world. And so, you know, I, it's just like, it's a long evolution, but that's, what's cool about it. We, we can play. Right. We should get I think everybody should get a functional knowledge of whatever technology they think is the coolest and just start building stuff. You know, like coding is the new math. Like if you don't know how to code, learn, make stuff, make anything. You know, this is this is where we're going because there will be a creator economy and we get to say what it is. This is this rare moment in time where we get to not predict the future. We get to make it. But we've got it. We've got to make That's an right. effort. We've and got to do something better. I, I I agree, and and I think your idea of creator economies. I, I really think that's universal basic income. I think everyone will be a creator with this technology. They'll be able to share things that make them human. That things that they previously can get done will probably be automated. Um, outside of probably essential workers that that need physical dexterity, etc. That was cool. In terms of um, you know the next steps for for Amy Peck and the Amy Peck Show, what what do you got planned? What, what what's coming on the horizon for you? Well, I'm um, pretty much living on a plane these days, uh, zero bedroom, six bath, <laughs> on United at thirty thousand feet. Uh, so I'm headed back to the East Coast soon. I'm going to. I'm spending a lot of time in um, uh, the Kingdom of of Saudi Arabia, which uh, it has really changed a lot over the last five years. I've, I have I have had uh, mixed reviews when I tell people, but there's so much change happening there and change doesn't happen in a vacuum. So I love to go, I love to meet people from there. There's a lot of energy, there's a lot of innovation. Um, and there there really is a worldview. Like, uh, you know, I, th I think that there's an opportunity for all of us to like we have to build this global landscape somehow. Like we have to all take a step forward and start looking at some of the, you know, major challenges we have, and and that will allow us, you know, if we if we can really overcome some of the environmental challenges, and we look at the SDG goals and how do we get to universal basic in, income, and how do we address, you know, global accessibility, um, let's let's 
you know, all point in that direction. And I think we will be amazed if we really start to develop a global culture that I think that is the nature of, of the DAO, but the DAOs are becoming exclusionary in their own right. What does a truly kind of inclusive global network look like of people kind of facing the same direction, care about, you know, similar things, um, but yet also celebrate their differences. That's the piece that we're really missing is looking at others and going, wow, that's cool. Instead of going, well, you're an idiot because you think that, you know, and we just, there's this lack of respect and joy about what other cultures, um, you know, bring to the world. And so, yeah, we need a mindset shift. I think we all probably just need to go into VR and do like an hour of trip day, T-R-I-P-P. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love trip. And she also, by the way, um, I don't know if she still does a lot because I haven't been in in a while, but um, she narrated a lot of those. So if you, for anyone who does not know, Trip is a mm. beautiful meditation app. It's available on the Quest. Um, and in the early days, some of the early experiences, she has the most beautiful voice and she narrates. So you go in and you see this incredibly evocative environment and then it's her voice and she's talking you through. I can't do it because I have a terrible voice, but it it is. I, I highly recommend it. You got to go. We we all need that. You know, just like let's just chill out for a little bit and then go tackle the big problems. <laughs> I'm a big fan of meditation and meditation in XR. C couldn't agree more. How can people find you? Uh, I'm 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 best on LinkedIn uh, and then on the company formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> Too bad they got the tear down that that big sign that they had on top of the building that that's very topical i know but, i know uh, i know that you want to put the big x sign and they just yeah, took it down today to old office a little bit anything else uh you want to share with with people here in in terms of uh anything you got going on or but you already told them where to check you out but anything else you'd like to share as last parting words well if you are a developer and you're into xr and you build something really really cool Tell me about it. <laughs> I'd love to know. Fantastic. I you heard love, it first. Love, love developers. And I love ISVs. Like they're the ones making my life better. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for being a guest. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Bye. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it right here. Fabulous.